You're listening to Matt Walsh On Demand. Walsh on demand. I'm going to try to to keep things together for you as best I can. I'm having a little trouble thinking clearly right now because uh, you see my uh, our kids have had the have you heard of the hand foot and mouth disease? One and a half years old. We have twins, and my daughter came down with the hand foot and mouth disease, um, or uh, HFMD. I think is what they HFMD. So she came down with the HFMD. Uh, last week, and, and it's just horrible because there's there's you get she gets a fever and then there's blisters all in the mouth and blisters on the hands and the feet, and she got blisters on her face, and then because they have blisters in the mouth, then it hurts to eat, so they don't eat, and then they're very hungry, but they need to eat in order to get better, and so then they're waking up because they're hungry and in pain. They're waking up every 15 minutes at night, and so my somehow we don't know how, but my daughter got it contracted it from somewhere and this is what you're dealing with when you have when you have twins or i guess when you have um little kids close in age whether they're twins or not is that one gets sick and i think early on in parenthood and, and we're still early on i guess a year and a half into being parents you're still very naive and hopeful and optimistic so one of your kids comes down with some horrible uh virus or other disease and you think, well, I'm going to try to make sure that this sickness is not passed on to the other kid. And so you start disinfecting the toys and you make sure that they don't get too close to each other. You try to quarantine them as much as possible. You do everything you can. You put all this effort into it. When you're in the middle of wiping down the toys and keeping everything very clean, uh, your daughter sticks her hands in her mouth and then just walks over to your son and takes the hand that was just in her mouth and sticks it in his because they're, they're 16 months old, and that's what 16-month-olds do. And it was at that point that we just threw up our hands and said, all right, there's not, it's just, he's going to get it. And, that, and and I guess that's what most, you know, once you have a little more experience under your belt, that's what parents realize, is that there's no point. Once, once one has it, they're all going to get it. There's no point of even trying to stop it. It's just going to happen. So uh, that's what we've been um, dealing with, but... Unlike the the CDC dealing with uh, illnesses themselves, we have enacted a travel ban and we are quarantining and we're not allowing the kids to be around other people. So we're doing whatever we can to to contain this thing. All right. I want to start with um, I want to talk to you a little bit about about bad ideas. okay? and the good thing about bad ideas is that they they never work. And this means that when a bad idea is implemented, you rarely have to endure it for very long. That's the positive. Because bad ideas always come with a, with a severely limited battery life. So, so an army of idiots can build a gigantic monument upon a, a foundation of horribly ill-conceived notions. But it is all guaranteed to come crashing down eventually. But the problem, of course, is that, is that the idiots will be the first on the scene of the carnage and they're going to work quickly to construct a brand new tower. And what's worse is that this one will be even more unstable as it's going to be built from the rubble of the old bad idea. So this is this is progressivism in a nutshell. Bad ideas 
constantly built and rebuilt with pieces of worse ideas. And, you know, it's at some point you'd think that we'd take away their heavy machinery license and ban them from the construction site and say, you're not allowed to build things anymore. But we don't because we're even bigger idiots or cowards or idiotic cowards, as the case may be. That is, I think, essentially what's been going on in this country for the last, um, well, really the last the last 100 years, in fact. There's no better example of this dynamic than, than uh, what's happened with sexuality. Progressive ideas about sexuality have been a complete and total disaster. Almost apocalyptic in terms of scale. The progressives came along and tossed out the traditional moral standards that, that used to govern the sexual act. And, um, and what have we seen happen over the last 40 or 50 years because of that? We've seen STDs on the rise. We've seen childless families on the rise. Uh, we've seen divorce on the rise. We've seen, according to progressives themselves, we've seen more rape, more sexual assault. And in general, we've, we've seen things that you can't really quantify, things that, that, that don't lend themselves to, to statistics. But, but if you look around, you can tell that, that people are confused in relationships. They're not fulfilled. They're not happy. And that's why, you know, you can look at the divorce rate, the divorce statistics. We, we might have some numbers there. But people also aren't getting married. They're avoiding marriage altogether. And, but they are getting involved in a string of failed relationships, which we don't even have numbers for. But if you were to, if you were to look at the numbers of, you know, uh, how many failed relationships does the average person have in their past, uh, I think we would all probably agree that the number is significantly higher now than it would have been in, say, the 1930s. So the sexual revolution has been a complete and utter failure in one respect. But in another respect, it's been, it's been a smashing success for them. They they wanted to destroy the family and destroy traditional marriage, and that's that's um, what they've done almost. Or they've come they've come closer to it than anyone could have could have possibly imagined. In fact, the one statistical indicator that the people that want to uh, make the case that our modern ideas about sexuality have actually paid off, uh, the only statistical indicator that they can point to, the only one that they have, because they can't look at out of wedlock birth, they can't look at divorce disease i mean all that stuff is worse but but they do have a teenage pregnancy and so they'll say that well there's less teenage pregnancy now the teenage pregnancy rates are significantly lower now than they were say 60 70 80 years ago i i would bet even that the that and i don't know if we have numbers for this but the, the teenage pregnancy rate is probably now 90 percent lower than it was 200 years ago but obviously everything has to be taken into context. And yes, there is less teenage pregnancy now than there, than there would have been in the 1920s. But in the 1920s, the pregnant teenager, in the vast majority of cases, would have been married. So people were getting married at the age of 17 or 18 and having kids. It's not really fair to equate that with modern day teenage pregnancy. Now when people don't get married until they're 30... Yes, having a kid when you're 17 can be uh, can be a, a, a significant challenge. But back in the old days, they got married when they were 17 and they had kids and they started families. Completely different situation. So it would seem to be pretty difficult to argue that all is well in the land of relationships and human sexuality and romance. Um, it, it's it's a very perilous land, more like a minefield these days. And, and we all seem to acknowledge that, progressives included, 
which is why they have come up with something called affirmative consent, and or yes means yes. So these uh, affirmative consent standards have been implemented on college campuses around the country, and now they've they've made their way to um, state governments and state governments uh, first starting in in California, where three weeks ago Governor Jerry Brown signed into law the nation's first affirmative consent law, which requires any any state-funded institution to who hasn't implemented these standards to implement them. The standards are meant as a way to address the so-called rape epidemic or sexual assault epidemic on college campuses. You've probably heard it repeated time and time again that um, uh, that one in five, I believe, is, is the, the number we're given. One in five females on a college campus will be sexually assaulted. Now, that's a number that's astronomically high. It's also absurd. Um, there's no basis for it. There's no proof at all, no evidence at all that it's actually that high. Of course, we all agree that sexual assault is a horrible thing. Rape is a horrible thing. That's a disclaimer that shouldn't be necessary, but it is necessary because once you st- once you get into this conversation talking about rape and sexual assault, if you don't agree with the uh, common mainstream view of these topics, you're going to be accused of condoning rape itself. All of a sudden, you're apologizing for rapists. I'm not, but I also don't think... Based, I, I've never seen a shred of evidence that actually 20% of all females on college campuses will be sexually assaulted, raped. And you know what? If the number is that high, 20% of females on college campuses getting raped, I mean, that is a a number that it's beyond comprehension. If it's actually that high, then, and if you believe that it's high, then I would say you are insane if you send your daughter to to college. You're crazy to do it. If the number is that high, and if you believe that the number is that high, then, then you could not send a daughter that you love to a public college, could you? If there's a 20% chance that she's raped, 20%? See, people say things they don't even believe what they're saying. Because you can't possibly say that you actually believe 20% of females on college campuses are getting, are getting raped and then turn around and say it's still a, a good idea to go to college. Would you ever in a million years, in a million years, send your daughter to a place where there's a 20% chance of her getting raped? No, you wouldn't. Nobody would. So the number is not actually 20%, um, but it is, it is whatever the number is, it's too high. If there's one rape or one sexual assault, that's too high. It doesn't matter if the number is 0.0001% or 1% or 5%. Um, it, it doesn't actually matter because we already know it's too high. It shouldn't be happening. Progressives have come up with an idea to solve the problem, and they call it affirmative consent. Now, affirmative consent, as I said, it's a standard's already already on college campuses around the nation. Remember that if... If a man is accused of running afoul of the affirmative consent standards, he'll be dragged in front of these college rape tribunals where um, college administrators will sit and they'll listen to detailed accounts of the sexual activity between the accuser and the accused, and they will just pass judgment, their judge, jury, and executioner, and without any evidence whatsoever, they can brand the guy a rapist and expel him from, from campus. Of course, they can't put him in jail, although eventually it might get to that point. Who knows? But right now they can't put him in jail, but they can brand him a rapist and expel him, which is something that will ruin your life. Now, if you actually are a rapist, then I suppose you deserve it. You deserve for your life to be ruined because of it. Uh, some choices have have uh, eternal consequences, and that's one of them, and that's the way it should be. But with these new standards combined with the rape tribunal, 
um, what a lot of progressives and feminists have said is that is that uh, they've essentially declared that false accusations don't exist. They never happen. Never happen. Because if we believe that they could happen or that they do happen sometimes, on occasion, rare occasion, whatever it is, but if we believe that at the very least they could happen, then we there would have to be some way for a man who's accused to defend himself. There would have to be some recourse for the accused, just in case the, the accusations are not legitimate. But right now on many college campuses, there is no recourse whatsoever. A guy is accused and that's it. That's it. Nothing he can do. Unless he can prove his own innocence, which is impossible usually, he's done. He's finished. He's a rapist. He's gone. So let's look at the standards themselves so we can understand what qualifies as rape or sexual assault on college campuses these days. And maybe we can understand why that uh, 20% number is tossed around. So I'm looking at the um, language of the bill in California. Paragraph 1 says, Affirmative consent means affirmative, conscious, and voluntary agreement to engage in sexual activity. It is the responsibility of each person involved in the sexual activity to ensure that he or she has the affirmative consent of the other or others, others, now, we, we had to put this in the law because, uh, you know, some it, it could be a sexual encounter between two people or it could be an orgy. And we, we want to make sure that all of the persons, involved, all the participants, all of the orgy participants are there of their own free will and volition. So, um, as the law says, affirmative consent of the other or all of the people in an, in an orgy or, or some other. Can we get some other examples? I mean, there could be other sexual arrangements that, and I need them all specifically outlined in a law somewhere. Because remember, as liberals always said that that uh, that the government has no business in the bedroom, no business in the bedroom. But now we're writing laws where we, where the government outlines rules for how you can have sex, and these are laws and standards promoted by the people who say we should keep the government out of the bedroom. One minute they're saying as an absolute principle. It's nobody's business what happens in the bedroom. How many times have you heard that asserted as an absolute principle? Nobody's business, period, end of story. How many times have you heard that? Every single day, right? If you're talking about gay marriage or abortion, whatever, you're going to hear that absolute principle. But then they'll turn around and say, hey, we need college campuses to come up with rules and guidelines specifically outlining how to have sex. The hypocrisy and inconsistency is, I mean, it's, it's, it's insanity. It's what's become lunacy. It's incoherent. So it is the responsibility of each person involved in the sexual activity to ensure that he or she has the affirmative consent of the other or others to engage in the sexual activity. Lack of protest or resistance does not mean consent, nor does silence mean consent. Affirmative consent must be ongoing throughout a sexual activity and can be revoked at any time. The existence of a dating relationship between the persons involved or the fact of past sexual relations between them should never by itself be assumed to be an indicator of consent. Now, we all again agree that uh, both parties or all of the various parties involved in sexual acts should be consenting to it. There's no question about that. But what you have on, uh, in colleges and now um, written into law in California, soon to be in other states, is the notion that... Um, for the sexual act to commence, both people have to explicitly state, yes, I would like to have sex. That must be said. There's no feeling the vibe. There's no going with the moment. It's just, yes, I would like to have sex. And not only must that be said, but it must be continually repeated throughout the act. 
So I don't know if it's every minute, every 45 seconds, uh, I'm not sure, but periodically throughout the act, both must say, yes, I would like to continue this. If that is not done, then it could be a rape, which means that virtually every sexual encounter that has ever happened on the face of the earth was probably a rape. Because, and I don't know, I, I, I'm, I, I am not peeking into people's bedrooms, I'm not conducting surveys myself to ask how people have sex, but I, I don't think that people do that. I don't think that real human beings do that. I don't think, and let, let's put this in the, in the realm of marriage for a moment, uh, which is where, which is, which is the realm that, you know, in which sex should be occurring. Uh, but I, I, I don't, don't think that most husbands and wives will say, yes, I would uh, like to have sex. Yes, let's continue having sex. Let's, yes, can we, let's, let's now continue with this act that we are now participating in. Yes, let's, let's continue. I don't think that, not only does that not usually happen, it, it never happens. It never happens. Now, this is kind of an awkward conversation f for me. I mean, it's awkward for everybody. Um, it's just an awkward conversation in general. But it's even more awkward for me because um, I don't think that college students, unmarried college students, should be having sex on a college campus or anywhere else. I, I believe that sex should be reserved for the bonds of marriage. So on one hand, it's almost like I'm all of a sudden defending premarital sex or people that are engaging in it. Uh, it, it appears to be what I'm doing, and, and, uh, and I'm not defending the act itself, but I, I am defending the people that do it in that, yes, a, a guy that has premarital sex, I don't think he should, and I don't think women should either. But in a moment of weakness, um, they, they do it. We, we, we all sin. And I also don't think that just because they shouldn't have premarital sex means that they should be branded a rapist. I, I don't think that's what should happen in a civilized society. I don't think that's what God wants. I don't think the punishment for premarital sex should be, oh, now you're a rapist. I was reading an article on uh, the Weekly Standard written by Heather McDonald, and it's a really good article. It's entitled Neo-Victorianism on Campus. Now, she makes the point that, uh, as she says in the first sentence of her article, sexual liberation is having a nervous breakdown on college campuses. And she goes on to say that, that what, what liberals, progressives, feminists are suddenly doing is they, they're instituting all these rules and guidelines for sexuality, almost bringing us back to Victorian times. And the rules and guidelines are all all rest on this idea that women are helpless little flowers and they cannot be expected to assert themselves or say no to a sexual encounter. And so they must be essentially protected from themselves by men. So when, when a sexual encounter begins to occur, just because both parties seem to be kind of into it, as they say, and just because it sort of naturally happened, the man can't assume that the woman wants to do it. Just because she's doing it, she's not being forced to do it whatsoever. Uh, she's not unconscious. She's not asleep. Uh, she's not drugged. But just because of that, we can't be assumed that she wants to. That's why the man has to say, would you like to do what we're doing? And the woman must say yes. And every minute, every two minutes or so, the man has to stop and say, are you sure you would like to continue doing this? And the woman has to say yes. So these standards assume that a woman can't or wouldn't just say from the beginning, I don't want to do this. Reading from Heather McDonald's piece, uh, it says, It is impossible to overstate the growing weirdness of the college sex scene. It's <laughs> a good way of putting it. Campus feminists are re-importing selective portions of a traditional sexual code that they have long scorned in the name of ending what they preposterously call an epidemic of campus rape. They are once again making males the guardians of female safety and are portraying females as 
fainting and helpless victims of male libido. They're demanding that college administrators write highly technical rules for sex and aggressively enforce them. 50 years after after the proponents of sexual liberation insisted that college adults stop policing student sexual behavior. While the campus feminists are not yet calling for an assistant uh, dean to be present at their drunken couplings, they have created the next best thing, the opportunity to replay every grope and caress before a tribunal of voyeuristic administrators. Heather McDonald goes on to make the point that, you know, why, as conservatives and Christians, why are we trying to stop this? The effect will be less drunken sex on campus. That will be that will be the effect because um, these standards are are simply not realistic or reasonable and so it's become too risky now it's all it's already risky to 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 go out and have one night stands and hookups risky emotionally uh risky spiritually risky physically risky in a lot of ways but now it's also risky legally at least for a man i mean i mean think about this now i've never i, I never went to college but i'm told that it's it's actually not unheard of in fact for a woman to initiate a sexual encounter that that does happen so if a woman initiates a sexual encounter and the man goes with it the man could still be guilty of rape he could still be a rapist according to these standards if she starts uh carrying on with him and he doesn't stop and say do you want to do what you're doing right now if he doesn't do that and takes quote silence as consent he's a rapist potentially He's a rapist if the next morning the woman decides that he's a rapist. But like Heather McDonald says in her piece, colleges have become one big drunken orgy, and these uh, standards will will put a curb, will curb a lot of that. They'll put a stop to a lot of that. So so why should we, as conservatives or Christians, why should we step in and say, oh, you shouldn't do it? Now, isn't it like all of a sudden we become the uh, the free love, free sex people? Say, hey man, just let them let them have fun. Just let it be, man. But that's not really the point. That's not what I'm doing. I, I'm I'm old-fashioned, so I don't think, morally speaking, two unmarried people should have sex. But I also, as I said, I, I, I it is a huge injustice. It is an injustice for someone to potentially be branded a rapist when, in fact, he didn't commit a rape. And not only that, but when we expand the definition of rape to this extent, and when we go around saying 20% of all college women are raped, when we do that, we actually, through all of our hyperbole and exaggeration and overreaction, we, we, we bury, we end up burying the real rapes that are occurring. The actual victims get lost potentially in the shuffle. And the actual rapists, the dangerous people, the people who have, who have committed gravely evil acts, they can escape notice. That that might be the worst thing about all of this. But let's let's take a step back here and look at what's going on. Okay, going back to the beginning of this of this discussion, I said how, you know, there there used to be commonly accepted rules and guidelines that govern the sexual act. They, they weren't necessarily enforced by the state and they didn't have to be. It was these were these were culturally accepted rules and guidelines. And um they they made a lot of sense. Okay, they made a lot of sense. Uh, people said that you know you shouldn't have sex unless you're committed and loyal to the other person. And when you are in a a loving, committed, and loyal romantic relationship, 
the first thing that you do, once it's been determined that the relationship is that, that there is love there, there's commitment, there's loyalty, the first thing that you do, and this was the old way, uh, it's a way that some of us still still, uh, believe in, but uh, the first thing you do is you get married. So you fortify that commitment in the sacrament of marriage, and then you have then you have sex. Um, and sex is a very important part of marriage. In fact, even in the, in the, in the Catholic Church, um, it, it's you know, believed that the consummation of the marriage is part of the sacrament itself. That the marriage itself is fully realized that wedding night when the marriage is consummated. That, that's how important sex is to marriage. So the idea was, you know, sex should be loving and committed. And if you love someone and you are committed to them in a romantic sense, then you get married. And you do that first. There are practical reasons as well. Because once you're married, then you have that stability. So, you know, there are other consequences. Um, some people might cons- might call them rewards. But there are other consequences slash rewards to sex, which include kids, so if you're married and you have sex and then a kid comes along, well, now you have the stability of a marriage so that the kid will come into the world and enter into an actual family and not some disjointed, disorganized, chaotic mess. That's, that's how things used to be done. But progressivism came along and said, well, sex uh, is uh, a great thing and everyone should participate in it. There shouldn't be any standards, any rules to it at all. Just go out and have sex, have a great time. They quickly discovered that it's a very dangerous thing to go out and tell people, hey, just have sex, do whatever you want, just go have sex with everybody. They quickly discovered that that is, um, that's a, a dangerous thing to tell people. That sex is, no matter, no matter what anyone says, it's a very consequential and serious act. And so we, th- there have to be some standards to it. So progressives thought and they thought and they thought and they came and they said we need we, we've got a couple we, we don't want to admit that sex should only happen between married people but we have to come up with there has to be some kind of rule it can't we can't just literally say go have sex it doesn't matter and so um, the one thing that they've decided to hold on to the one standard that they are holding on to with dear life is consent that's it and that's that's good or at least it should be because. Obviously, you should have consent before you have sex with somebody. But when you've gone and you've erased all of the other principles surrounding sex and you've decided to hold on to one arbitrary thing, arbitrary in the sense that it's arbitrary to to just get rid of all of the uh, principles surrounding sex and only keep one. Once you do that, it's not grounded in anything. There's no real reason for it. So when you do that, when you take a multi-dimensional uh, moral code and you burn down everything and you leave one little pillar standing I think often you see when that happens in, in society that last pillar becomes a religion and that's what we've seen happen with consent we, we, we've turned consent which is really a pretty simple concept of somebody consenting to something but we've we've turned it into this extremely complicated and complex concept and I think we do that because, in a way, we're trying to take consent, which is the one uh, moral law governing sex that we can that everyone still agrees upon, right? And we're trying to sort of make up for all of the other moral uh, guidelines that we've gotten rid of. So we're trying to create a situation where sex is healthy and constructive and fulfilling, and we're trying to do that only with this concept of consent. But it's, it's insufficient. And I, I wrote about this myself uh, a few months ago. 
And I made I made the point that you know consent um, if it if it can't be considered consent when let's say for instance a woman initiates uh, sexual activity and she is not drugged she is not unconscious um, she is not uh, in the middle of a psychotic episode or anything like that she's not delusional she initiates sexual act and then the two participants through no physical force or coercion whatsoever continue on with it if that can't be considered consent then then what is consent and you might tell me that consent is affirmative enthusiastic verbal but how do you account for the other exigent circumstances that might lead someone to give affirmative affirmative and verbal enthusiastic consent despite their intention their internal hesitations so so for instance what about the woman who has sex with her boyfriend because she believes, perhaps accurately, that he'll leave if she doesn't. What about the man who, who has sex with a woman thinking that this will be the beginning of a long and meaningful relationship only to find out that he's just a rebound from her last fling? What about the woman who goes out looking for sex with a man but only to fill the void left inside her after years of abuse and abandonment at home? So what about the woman who, who is guilted into sex? What about the man having sex with a woman who only wants him for his money? What about a person, man or woman, who has sex with any other person but wouldn't have done it had they known the other's intentions and motivations? Are all of these people victims of rape? They're either consenting under duress or consenting to a particular kind of sex or to sex for a certain reason, not realizing that the other person has a different design. All of these people end up feeling lost and confused and hurt and broken. Yet all of these people could have given verbal and enthusiastic consent. I mean, these are all images that are, are very different from the image of a woman being physically attacked and manhandled by a violent assailant. But under the broader definition of rape, these examples, I guess, should be included. Maybe that's, you know, maybe rape is even more common than the most radical progressive feminist could possibly imagine. Maybe all sex on college campus is rape. Or, you know, maybe it doesn't matter what word you use to describe it. Because there's something wrong with it. You know, there's something wrong with with um, a lot of the sex that goes on, particularly on a college campus. There's something wrong with it. It isn't good. It isn't healthy. And clearly, we can all see that. We seem to realize that it can be quite hazardous when men and women get together in frat houses and dorm rooms and, and purposefully drink until their judgment is several stages beyond impaired. And we seem to realize that sex in the hookup culture comes with a lot of heartache and a lot of regret and a lot of abuse. We, we seem to realize that sex should be treated with a certain level of respect, only we're afraid to fully embrace what that means. So the only rule, the only standard that we're allowed to place on sex these days is consent. But we find that consent is not enough. A woman can consent on some level and still be left feeling used and exploited. You know, I, um, I do believe that there are times, and apparently some feminists disagree with this, but I do believe there are times when a woman is not raped by any, by any reasonable definition of the term. She wakes up the next morning and, uh, and decides that she was. I do believe that that happens. And I do believe that sometimes it happens because uh, the woman is being malicious and she wants to destroy this guy's life. But it could also happen because, you know, the woman and, and, and the man as well, although I think a man is less likely to, to, to um, you know, go and, and accuse someone of rape in this circumstance, but a woman or man can wake up the next morning 
and uh, it's not that they have any malicious plot to try to destroy the other person, but they feel exploited. They feel empty. They feel hurt. It doesn't feel right anymore. What they did last night feels wrong. And that's because it was. It was empty. It was exploitative. Many times on both ends. It doesn't make it rape. It doesn't mean that it's rape. It doesn't mean someone goes to jail. It doesn't mean anybody should be expelled. But it does mean that there that there's something wrong with what happened. It does mean that apparently consent is not enough. So we can we can address that by making the parameters for consent ever more complicated and complex and confusing and unrealistic and absurd. Or we can come to terms with the fact that if we really want to uh, protect college kids, if we want to protect ourselves, if we want to uh, beat back the so-called rape culture, then we have to come up with a standard that goes beyond consent. And we have to in- introduce some other guidelines. And those guidelines are love, commitment, marriage, openness to life. You know, there's no gray area here. If your sex is an act of love and commitment, and if it's taking place within the sacrament of marriage, and if both parties are prepared to embrace the life that may very well be created as a result of the act, then you can be sure that no rape is happening. You can also be sure that there'll be no regret. You can be sure that the sex is healthy, and it's beautiful, and it's right, and it's fulfilling. I'm not saying that rape never happens in a marriage, but if all of these parameters are met, if it's a loving act, if it's a committed act, then then we don't need to call in a bunch of academics to formulate a precise consent spectrum. It doesn't, rape is never an act of love and commitment. So if you are in a, a loving and committed marriage um, and you are treating each other in a loving and committed way, then whatever is happening can't be abusive and it can't be wrong because rape is never lo- loving and never committed. You know, so why isn't this our message? Rather than saying to a guy, hey, yeah, you know, you're both um, willingly having sex, uh, but this still might be rape, you know, rather than saying that, why don't we make it easier on everybody and just say this, if you do not love this person and if you are are not committed to them, if you are not married, then don't have sex with them. Simple. All right. Before we, before we wrap it up for the day, um, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about and maybe you've, uh, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've heard it, but even if you have, I think it, it could still be fun to relive it because this is just, uh, hysterical in a lot of ways. A couple of days ago, a video of an animal rights activist made its way to YouTube. And the, the woman that you'll hear, her name is Kelly Atlas. She is the, uh, well, I, don't, I don't know if she's in charge of, or she's a member of Direct Action Everywhere. And that, I guess, is an animal rights group. Uh, she recently rescued a chicken from an egg ranch um, after the chicken's egg production peaked. And you know, uh, by the way, she, she named her chicken Snow. So Snow, I, I, I guess, it was was uh, on the decline as far as producing eggs. And you know what, what happens often when chickens stop producing eggs. They are viciously slaughtered, murdered, and devoured without mercy, without shame, without justice. Kelly Atlas simply has uh, had enough of this. So she took a camera crew with her. And uh, because that's what you do anytime you're going to stand up for what's right in the world, you make sure there's a camera there to record it. So she she walked into a a restaurant, a restaurant that serves, I guess, you know, meat like uh, chickens and other animals. And she launched into this speech 
trying to shame the people there for eating uh, delicious, delicious meat. So let's let's play a little bit of this um, of this video. Uh, the video is titled hashtag disrupt speciesism. Speciesism. And speciesism is a, a or speciesism is it speciesism or speciesism? In any case, it's the it's the uh, totally baseless belief that we as human beings are in some way superior to say cockroaches and um, uh, bacteria. So again, I you know running a high tech operation, I'm gonna have to play this audio from uh, my iPad into the microphone. Because I am just a uh, professional. All right, here we go. She's walking into the restaurant. Excuse me, everyone. I have a little girl. She was very abused for her entire life. She was terrified. She has a very determined look in her eyes wherever she goes. And she was hurt and abused her entire life because of this establishment and because of establishment. Can you hear the song in the background? It might be difficult to hear. But she walked in right as the song My Girl is playing in the background. Now, how annoyed would you be? You're already trying to enjoy your hamburger, and then this great song comes on, and you're just feeling it. You know, it's just a great moment. You're eating your uh, delicious hamburger or chicken sandwich, and then the song comes on, and then this then this girl walks in. Can, can you shut up until the song is over at least, and I finish my hamburger, and then I'll hear you out? like it. She was locked away. She was hidden. She had nobody there for her. She was crying. She was scared every single moment. She's a chicken. And because her usefulness had run out, she was going to be killed. Yeah, she's a chicken. Was so. going to murder her. And I can see you smiling. And I can see you laughing. But to her, this is not funny. I went in there with other humans, and I took her out of there. Well, it's not funny because she's a chicken, so I, she doesn't really... I don't know that anything could be funny to a chicken uh, being a chicken, that, you know, they're, they're chickens, so they don't have probably a sense of humor. Um, that's not... They, you know, because they're a chicken. And if I hadn't, she wouldn't be with me right now. She would be gone, just like all of her sisters, just like everybody who we left behind. And I'm here to tell you today... <laughs> Life's not fair if you're a chicken. And every time you see someone eating somebody else's eggs or somebody else's body, you are going to remember her name. Her name is Snow. (laughs) I will remember her name. It is a delicious sounding name, isn't it? A bunch of people came in. It's not food, it's violence. Think of her name every time you see somebody's body on a plate. Her name is Snow, and she just wants to live. Thank you. Yeah, she probably doesn't want to live. I, I, she's a chicken, so they don't, I don't think she has any concept of what living means. All right, let's turn this off. 
I don't think she, I don't think a chicken is inherently capable of yearning for life, uh, being a chicken and all. But in any case, Snow sounds like a delectable name, and I. Uh, Oh man, people are. Uh, you know, I I could um, almost. And I'm choosing my words carefully. I could almost not respect. Um, well, it, it it they're they're not going to convert me to their cause for sure. But anyone who believes something and believes it passionately and will live according to that belief consistently. You know, I can respect that most of the time. So let's say that, and I don't know anything about this woman. I don't know anything about the other people that um, are part of this group. I don't know anything about them personally. But if, by and large, animal rights activism was uh, driven by, you know, people who are so overcome with compassion and empathy for living things that they are actually they, they they are reduced to tears at the sight of somebody eating a western omelet um I, I you know i would question their mental stability a little bit but but i would at the same time respect that level of compassion the problem of course is that and again i don't know anything about these people but it seems you know animal rights activists in san francisco it seems very very likely that they are not also pro-life activists, right? And I could be wrong, but if I had to put money on it, I'm going to bet that the woman you, you just heard, she is not exactly um, the most passionate opponent of abortion. In fact, she's probably quite the opposite, right? And that's the way it usually works. So this is the deadly... Uh, so to speak, flaw of uh, much of the animal rights stuff that you see is that they have all of this immense concern for for the smallest and most insignificant animal life. I mean, chickens, eggs, insects, rodents. They see these these creatures, these beasts, and they feel they're overcome with they they they. they they just desire for for these uh, for these beasts to, to, to be allowed to live and, and roam uh, freely throughout society, but they don't feel that way towards human children. And until they learn to take that um, pro-life passion that they have for for chickens, until they take that and apply it to human beings, they can never be taken seriously. So if you're going to cry, if you're going to walk into a diner and and start uh, and break down in tears because I'm eating a sausage link, um, but you but you don't break down in tears inside of an abortion clinic, then you you can't be taken seriously, and everyone's just going to laugh at you because you are not serious. You are not a serious person, and your your convictions are fraudulent. They aren't real. And I refuse to treat them like they are. So you'll just be laughed at. That's the way it is. All right, that's it for me. Um, we'll leave it there. If we're not friends on Facebook yet, go to facebook.com slash blog or follow me at blog on Twitter. And I will talk to you next week. Akuche Salus. Have a great weekend, everybody.